0: Okay, Uh, do you all believe that um, God can use weak and pathetic things to do good things? Me too. So let's hopefully, this Sunday will be a good example of that. (laughs) Just kidding. All right, we are continuing the study of Ecclesiastes. For those who don't know me, I'm Zach Mason. Most of y'all know me. I teach the youth here. I'm one of the elders as well. Uh, On occasion, Brian gives me the opportunity to preach, and I always accept that eagerly. Actually, I actually haven't gotten to preach in front of you guys in over a year, so I'm excited to be back in the saddle, so to speak. Um, we are continuing our study of Ecclesiastes in chapter 5. We'll also do chapter 6. So we got a lot, I have a lot to talk about today, and I don't know if you noticed, but the preacher, as we call him, uh, the guy that wrote this book whether that's Solomon or not, the preacher has a lot, covers a wide range of topics, so I'm going to cover it a lot. Um, I'm going to try to my best to bring it all to a nice summary point, uh, but thank you all for listening to me, and we'll just get right to it. All righty. So the overarching theme of Ecclesiastes is kind of all is vanity and chasing after the wind. We've heard that expression almost constantly about every topic that the preacher has uh, said so far in the book. He's talked about wealth, vocation, um, where do you go when you die, how man and animal, they both die, whether you're rich or poor, you're going to die, whether you're wise or foolish, you're going to die, whether a human being or a dog, you're going to die. All is vanity and chasing after the wind. We're going to do a little switcheroo here at the beginning of chapter 5, and we're going to see that it's going to be a little, we're going to have a little different, but there's still that theme of vanity is still present. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1, the preacher says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty, to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and the fool's voice with many words. Alrighty. so the topic at the start is worship, and he hasn't addressed worship yet. Uh, was there a mention of vanity in this particular paragraph? No, we're going to assume here that worship is not a vain thing, unlike What job you do, how much stuff you collect, whether you're wise or foolish, worshiping God, there is meaning and a right way to do that. There's also a foolish and unwise way to do that. In fact, uh, verse, let's see, verse 2, Be not rash with your words, nor let your heart be hasty at a word before God, for God is in heaven and on earth, therefore let your words be few. Um, We see that there is a right way to worship God and that we shouldn't be rash or hasty in how we worship Him. So continue on in verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not, let, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you to sin into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So now we're seeing that there is a vain way to worship God. So the first point in your outline, we're, we're going to blaze right through this first part, is going to be, oh, I have it right here. What is the word that I say? Worship is a gift from God. And then the second point, right after that, Worshipping foolishly is vanity. Worship itself is not a vain thing. Um, You work for all the possessions that you have and you get to enjoy them and it's nice that you get to enjoy them, but ultimately the things you work for, they go away and they go to somebody else. Vanity. But us coming here on Sunday, worshiping the eternal God and sharing our faith with our families and friends, not vanity. Vanity. That has an eternal consequence to it. But if we worship foolishly, then we enter the vanity portion of it. There is a vain way to do so. Um, In fact, verse 1 in chapter 5, fools do not know that they are doing evil. If we offer the sacrifice of a fool, we are doing evil things, and we don't even realize we're doing it. So there's even evil way that we can worship God. Um, And that's probably not too hard for us to imagine, there's a lot of uh, liberal cult, uh, churches and a lot of word of faith churches and a lot of prosperity churches that their worship of God and the things that they say about God are downright evil, and we can imagine that. And he, the preacher here is warning, be wise, be guard your steps when you approach the house of God. Don't be foolish, and you won't do anything evil. Now there's a one particular way that he is telling you to look out for, and that's vowing, making promises to God. So back then... When they had the temple, they, a guy thinking that he's, that he's pious can make a big deal of himself and bring an offering to God and say, God does this for me, I'm going to do this for him. If God prospers me, prospers me in this way, I'm going to do something for him. Or God has done something for me already, I'm going to make a big show of it, and I'm going to offer this great, big, costly sacrifice. We have an, an Old Testament example of that in Judges with Jephthah. After Jephthah was a warrior for Israel... And after they defeated the Ammonite army, Jephthah made a really ridiculous and hasty and rash declaration in front of all of Israel and said, God has given us victory. The first thing that walks out of my tent, I'm going to sacrifice. And what was the thing? What was the one thing that walked out of his tent? Do you remember? His daughter. And back then, if you weren't, good, if your word, if you weren't as good as your word, you weren't worth anything. And so ultimately, Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter because he was rash and hasty with his worship and with his words. Therefore, his worship of God uh, became vanity. Now, this idea of don't make vows, Christ in the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount makes this point as well. He says, don't even bother making oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, James, the book of James, echoes that same exact sentiment, whereas the preacher here is like, hey, if you can't pay a vow... Don't bother. Don't even make it. And Christ goes even further and says, just don't even make a vow. What can you offer God in exchange? Like, what does God not have that you can make a deal with him? That's kind of what you're saying. God is the one that has handed down Israel. He hands down to us how we ought to worship him and obey him. But when we say, no, that's not really enough. I want more. God, you do this for me. I'll give you this. We try to make a deal and act like he's some, like a bank, and we're trying to get a loan from him or something. We make this deal this barter with them, we are ripping up the way that God wants us to worship them. We're no longer worshiping God himself and serving him. We are ending up serving this deal that we make with him. Does that make sense? You know, God enters covenant with us because he wants to enjoy us. And yes, because he is holy and we are evil, there are stipulations to how we ought to approach him. We have to be cleansed in the blood of Christ, Right? We have to step in faith. Because what Christ has done for us, we can boldly approach that throne and worship him. But our own egos, our own foolishness will get in the way and say, well, perhaps what God has done is not enough. Let's make a deal, God. You do this for me, I'll do that in exchange. And our own words basically set a trap for us, because oftentimes we can't make good on our end. God is faithful to come through on his end, but we fail. And when we break a vow with God, that's a sinful thing. The good news is we don't have to make vows and deals with God. God has made a vow with us, being our God, and therefore we should just avoid making rash promises. And we've all been there. Like Myself personally, I've said, God just gave me this full-time job. I'll tithe 100% for a year, and uh, you know that just does not work out. Um, I repent of that. Um, but we've all been there. Like If God would just do this one thing, I'll go to church more often. I'll share my faith more often. I'll give more often. I'll volunteer more often. And You know, life happens, and you get that good thing, and you realize, oh, wait, I I have to pay a bill that I really can't afford kind of a deal. Thankfully, God does not expect that of us. He is the one that gives, not the one that exchanges. And we can just come to him. We don't have to put a vow of our own making in between him and God. God is the one that gives freely. All right, moving on. Verse 8, totally different topic change. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor... And the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet a higher one over them. But this, gain, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So don't be shocked that government is corrupt. I think we've all kind of experienced a corrupt government. I read one commentary, and the commenter said, it's better to live under a corrupt government than anarchy. Isn't that interesting? It is better to be ruled by an evil ruler than have no ruler. It is better to be under a bad law than utter lawlessness. God establishes rulers, kings, leaders. He does not establish lawlessness and anarchy. It's a very interesting concept. Now, imagine just really preaching this verse to our culture and saying, guys, really, don't be shocked that there are corrupt people. We act like we're just utterly shocked constantly when a politician does something stupid or corrupt, we're just like, I, I well, I've never. You know, we, we have this attitude, and the preacher's like, guys, it happens constantly. Remember, though, that there is one above them, right? Uh, I'm sure you guys are pretty familiar that there's a little thing going on in Washington about something about an impeachment. It has nothing to do with peaches, but it's a big, big deal going on. Um, I don't really care what side you land on it. The preacher says, don't be shocked one way or the other. Each side thinks the other side is, corrupt, is completely corrupt and evil. The preacher says, don't be surprised. And that's the message they ask for everybody. We have so much passion and anxiety about these things, and Solomon or the preacher says, yeah, don't have anxiety. Remember, there is one higher above them. Uh, Proverbs 21, uh, I love this proverb, it says, the heart of a king is like a river in the hands of God. He turns it where he wills, Right? God is the one that turns the heart of kings. Replace the word king with president, senators, or congressmen, or representatives, and you kind of got the gist of it. There is always someone above a ruler, even if they are corrupt. All right, moving on. Verse 10. A different topic change. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats a little or much. But this full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Alrighty. Can you ever have enough money? Yes, you can, so long as you hate it, right? If I taste a little bit of something of a food and I hate it, I've had enough. Um and we had Thanksgiving. I'm not a big fan of potato salad. I know that's kind of like blasphemy down here, but I've tried really hard to like it. I, I, I smell it, and I've had enough. I'm sorry. I've tried, really, I've tried all kinds of potato salad, and my grandmother's looking at me because she makes really good ones, supposedly. But I, I just don't like it. I, I try very hard, and I just I can't. I have a I bite, I'm like, I'm good. But if it's something that I really love, if it's food, I will hurt myself eating too much of it. And that's kind of the analogy he makes here. A poor man... Who doesn't love money is like someone who gets asleep even if they're not full but a rich man who loves money will gorge himself on possessions and it'll make him sick and will keep him up at night Um, if you love money this is a true thing you can never have enough of it there is never enough of something when it comes to money you can never have enough of something that you love and if your love is for money you will ruin your life trying to get it. And you don't even have to be rich or you can be a homeless person to have a great love for money. Um, and because there's just never enough. The lottery just started in this state. What do you think people do in, who play the lottery and win the jackpot, what do they do with their money? They buy more lottery tickets. That's a true thing. I've, I've seen documentaries where a guy won a billion dollars and he spends his weekends playing a local lottery. It's like, you're already a billionaire. What, isn't, don't you have enough? Not if you love money. It's never enough. And you, you ask yourself, what is the point of this money if you're not going to spend it? I mean, if you love it, you just, I don't know if you guys seen The Hobbit, but Smog, that just that dragon that lives in the, in the cave and he's just surrounded by gold. He just loves being surrounded. It's like, what's the point? You're just wasting your life loving money. Um, Pro, uh, Ecclesiastes uses the analogy of a river running into an ocean. Yeah, the rivers, they run into the sea, but the sea is never full So it is if we love money. We are never satisfied with enough money. Uh, Bill Gates is probably not satisfied with the amount of money he has at this point. Unless, of course, he's seen the vanity of it all, which perhaps he has. All righty. Moving on, verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. So we're about to get a little bit more depressing. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall come and go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Uh, the money that you do have is not a guarantee. You may think you're spending it wisely on a good venture, but it could go wrong. Um, you could, you may think that you may get even richer by putting on a risky venture, but it could go wrong. We've already explained that what's the point of collecting money and wealth because when you die, it's just going to go somebody else and they're going to enjoy it. How much more wicked would it be is you spend your life collecting this money and you lose it while you're alive and you have nothing to give to your progeny. It's just a really sad thought to think especially back in those days. You have, you have not been able to set up something good for your kids. It's just an evil thing that Uh, The preacher is lamenting here. Uh, Naked as you came, naked as you will return. That's from Job. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, all is vanity. And and it's just a grievous evil. I mean, that's just another, just a sad thing to to dwell on. Verse 18, moving on. And this is where I kind of really want, this is where the heart of my message today is going to kind of rest on these next two passages. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting, so good, something good to take note of, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Uh, The preacher has already explained this in chapter 2. It is good that you just enjoy, enjoy the work that God has given you. Because that's basically what your lot is. To find Enjoyment in what in the work that God has given you, uh, the wisdom of this age is you find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Ecclesiastes' wisdom is the job that you have, you should find enjoyment in it. Uh, we live now fortunately, we live in a pre- better society and economy where we can we have more options. back then we, you're, if you're born to a shepherd, you're kind of stuck being a shepherd or a guy that collects crops or what have you. In this day and age, we have an opportunity to pursue employment in different places, to get an education and find careers, even change careers in the middle of our life. We have that luxury. Um, But the wisdom that that the preacher is offering is whatever you find yourself in, the lot that God has given you, you should find enjoyment in it somehow. And that's not always easy. Uh, Believe me, I've been there. But that is what the advice that the preacher gives here. Now, verse 19 is where I want us is really going to start paying attention. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his loss lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he not, will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So wealth and possessions... And the power to enjoy them, that is a gift of God. So point three, possessions are a gift of God. I'm just summing up wealth and what you have. Possessions is a gift of God. Particularly though, the power to enjoy them. And why is this a gift from God? Because of verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life, Because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. If you are able to enjoy the things that God has given you and the work that he has given you to do, you will not notice how sad and miserable our existence is. (laughs) You will not notice how vain life is, how chasing after the wind all of this is, because you're too busy enjoying the things that God has given you. And that is what is so good about the stuff that you have and the power to enjoy it. It's still vanity. Absolutely. But it's still a gift from God. If you think about the garden that God planted Adam and Eve in, you know, he had a variety of fruit trees, and not just one fruit tree or two fruit trees, but countless. And what did Adam and God spend their days doing? They just enjoyed and walked it together. Adam really had the opportunity where everything was given to him, and he had the power to enjoy it. Of course, he wanted more, and the rest is history. Um, But... That's kind of what our existence was meant to be. God gives us things and we enjoy it. That was the point of all of this. But now we live in vain days where death is right around the corner and all you can do is just enjoy the things that God has given you. Okay, but there is a flip side of this. What if one part of that equation, wealth, possessions, and the power to enjoy them is removed? And this is where it gets a little bit heavy. Verse uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and a lie heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. So it was a gift, wealth, possessions, the power to enjoy them was a gift. But what if you don't have the power? So he does not have the power to enjoy them, Continue in verse 2. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Wealth, possessions, power to enjoy them is a gift from God. Wealth, possessions, but you're not able to enjoy them is evil. A grievous evil. And how evil is it? Verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children, that's a good thing back then. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now when he says has no burial we're not talking about it was on his yacht and he got lost at sea and there's no body to bury. We're talking he lives forever. You're a rich man who does not die And you have everything that you want, but you can't enjoy them. That's what he's saying when he's saying there's no burial. He's also saying it's better to be a stillborn who didn't live a day of his life than to be this person. Now, I would not use that analogy personally because it's a very almost insensitive thing to say unless, of course, the preacher meant it exactly the way he said it. I don't think... Whoever wrote Ecclesiastes is being flippant when he makes this analogy, because that's a very heavy thing. Um, you know, back then childbirth was very complicated, and I'm sure whoever wrote this heard many stories of sad mothers and fathers who lost a child at childbirth, and that's a very bitter thing. And I'm sure he's aware of this. I think he's calling us to say, "You should believe then it really is better to be stillborn than to live a life pursuing wealth." Eternity, pursuing wealth and not able to enjoy it. So why, what is the reason, why is it better to be stillborn than that? Verse, let's say, 4. For it, stillborn child, comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness, its stillborn child, name is covered. Moreover, child has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, the rich man. Even though he, the rich man, should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So, what is the reason then why a stillborn is better? The stillborn has rest. Whereas, that would include that would imply that the rich man does not. And think about it. He's rich. He spent, in this case, I guess like a vampire type scenario where he's thousands of years old, spending all of eternity, going after wealth and possessions, but never enjoying it. It's like, uh, I guess there's the story of King Midas. Everything he touches turns to gold. Awesome, but, I mean, if you want to high-five your best friend, not so cool because now he's a gold statue and you can't talk to him anymore. You're surrounded by wealth and riches, but you don't have the power to enjoy it. And you spend your entire life working for these riches and these wealth, but you don't have to enjoy it. That b- makes it a burden. So like I've got this big, heavy Bible in my hands, uh, and, and it is the key to eternal life. I mean, this should be my greatest treasure. But if I can't read it, or I don't understand the words in it, I mean, it's pretty heavy. If I lug this thing around for a thousand years, i consider this a burden rather than a blessing. Better is it that I'd be able to read it. But if I can't enjoy this big, heavy Bible, I'm, I, it's just a weight around me that wears me down. And that's how it is with riches. Imagine just having all these collections, this big house, fast cars, awesome job, all this prestige, yet you're too troubled or you're too incontent with it all that you don't really get to enjoy it. I mean, I feel like that's kind of what our economy is based off. The new iPhone is always right around the corner. You're like, what's the point of buying the newest one? You know next year there's going to be something even bigger and better that you're going to want. When does it it end? When do you stop serving the stuff that you want and just enjoy the stuff that you want? Does that ever happen? Are we ever satisfied with that? Our, Our economy is geared to say, no, you can never be satisfied. Always get the next best thing. Always get the coolest, latest thing. And what that ends up being for us, to so point five, serving possessions is vanity. It's good that we are able to enjoy the things that God has given us. But if we cannot find satisfaction in the things that we have given us, it's a great evil. And it's like we become a slave to our stuff, a slave to our wealth and to our possessions. And who are we supposed to be serving? Amen, God. But when we become concerned about collecting money or the next best thing or what have you, you will never be satisfied. Just like you can't have enough money, you cannot have the next best. You can never have enough of the next best thing. And you become a slave to it. Kind of like when you make a vow to God, you now become a servant to that vow rather than the God that you made the vow to. You become a servant to the stuff that you want rather than the God who gave you that stuff to enjoy with. And that's not how it's supposed to be. So let's finish this uh, section. All the toil, verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So there is no satisfaction in the work. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. It's better to have than to want. The The sight of the eyes is better than the wandering appetite. It's better to have and see it rather than want it, whatever that might be. Verse ten. Whatever has come to be has already been named, so nothing new under the sun, and it is known what man is, and what he is not able to and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? All is vanity, striving after the wind. You know, what's the point of it all? You work to feed your appetite, but you are never satisfied. The mouth is never full enough. The belly's never full enough. You never have enough. This is the toil that it is for us. All is vanity, chasing after the wind. All righty. So, I could leave it there, and that'd be really sad, but Brian has said a president of making you guys feel good after we leave. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, it's good, though. No, well, we don't live in the... We have the answers to these questions, though, right? We live in the advent of Christ. Is today the first day of advent? Okay, so, no pun intended, but we are, we live in the advent of Christ, risen from the dead, and we are looking... We have the next big thing that we are looking forward to, right? We are looking forward to the day when heaven and earth pass away, and they become one, and they're new... We are looking forward to that eternal state when the dead rise again. Christ comes, declaring victory over death and sin. And we are all gathered together with the saints throughout the ages, worshiping God in eternity. That is, what, that is our next big thing. That is what we're waiting for. Um, now, let's, to put this kind of in perspective, I kind of, we have to kind of, I have to shift focus here. If we apply these same wisdom topics we've discussed to God, what pans out? So, in God, there is a doctrine about the blessedness of God, which means that God is perfectly content. Um, can we Do we think that God is waiting for the next big thing? Does God not have enough? Is there something that God lacks? Does God not have enough wealth and possessions? Uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and I'd say the entire universe belongs to God. Can we say that God is like the rich man who has this great wealth and not the power to enjoy it? Or is he? does he never have enough money or what have you? Does God want things is basically what I'm asking. Does God have desires that are unmet? Um, no, I don't think we would think of God as someone, as a God that's looking forward to something more or something new or something additional. He's not lacking anything. He has everything that he is needed. He is perfectly blessed. He has everything that he needs, and everything that he wants, and everything that he desires. Unlike us, who constantly want and need things. Um, God is also perfect, and we would say that maybe God has a desire. Him being God, would he not want the very best thing? We all want the best thing, Let's assume God would want the best thing. What would be the best thing that we could imagine? God himself. And I would imagine God would want the best thing too, which is himself. So let's assume that God wants himself. Does God have himself? Yes, of course. It's not a trick question? God is the greatest thing that we can imagine. That's one way of describing who God is. And if God is the greatest thing that we can imagine, doesn't it make sense that God would want himself as well? In fact, God's greatest desire is to pro, is his own glory. And does God have that? Does God have himself? Does he have the greatest thing that we can imagine? Absolutely. God possesses himself in it, so to speak. He has himself. He is with himself. He is himself. And therefore, he has nothing that... He lacks nothing, right? If he has the greatest thing... What else could he possibly want? Nothing. So, if God has everything that he could ever want, the universe and himself, what else could he need? Nothing. What else could he work to achieve? Nothing. Therefore, God is perfectly at rest. Because God doesn't have a wandering appetite, um, as we said in verse 9, He doesn't have a wandering appetite. He sees and possesses everything that he wants. Okay, so we have that blessed state in God at rest. And didn't he say that the reason why the stillborn was better than the rich man who can't enjoy what he has because a stillborn is at rest. In a sense, God too is at rest because he's not striving or grasping or trying to get more of anything. Okay, so with that in mind, God being at rest... We are, though, and Him being the best thing ever, we have to think about what is eternity going to be like. Um, Will there be unmet desires in heaven? Will there be wants and needs that won't be satisfied in heaven? Will there be people in heaven in the new new age to come that are like the rich men who have everything, but not the power to enjoy it? Will there be people in the age to come who are worse off than a stillborn child. Obviously not. Obviously there will not be wants or desires or any form of suffering in the age to come. We will have the best thing that we can imagine, and we will have the power to enjoy it. So, In the last point of your bulletin, God gives himself to us, and we rest in him. What we're, the most, probably the primary thing we're going to do in the age to come is just enjoy the presence of God. God is infinite. That means there is never enough of Him that we will never run out of things to enjoy about Him. We will always enjoy Him. And it will be Himself that He gives to us. He has already given His Son to die on the cross for us, so we'll have Him making a way that we can come to God in glory, worshiping Him For eternity. Um, And that is what we will have. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. All our inner desires of wanting things will be met in God in the age to come. And that is what we look forward to. When the heaven and earth become one, Christ is seated on his throne. We'll be able to see and touch and hear him. We'll be able to worship him and to praise him. We will have... The thing that we have wanted the most of all, which is God Himself. And it'll be by His Spirit that we'll be empowered to enjoy Him. We will be able to be the ones to have rest in Him. And in Him there will be no more vanity. And we talk about how this whole book is about how our entire life is vanity, which just means there's meaninglessness. But God, in God, He is nothing but meaning. He is nothing but meaningfulness. And we will have that meaning, that great purpose at our hands, at our disposable, in that day. And that is what we look forward to, and that's what God is going to give us. That is the rest that we are looking forward to. When we see God face to face, unfailed, in the fullness of his glory, beholding him, worshiping him, not in a vain way, not in a foolish way, but in a true and reverent way, worshiping the God who is not a despot, not a wicked ruler, but one who rules mightily and justly. We will see him and behold him, This God of ours that gives us everything that we could ever imagine. The earth and heaven will be ours. But most of all, the one who created will be ours. He will be our possession that he gives to us. And we will serve him and enjoy him. And that is the gift that we have. And when we have that, we too will have rest. We'll be better than the stillborn child. Who though he didn't suffer, at least he has rest. But better, we'll be able to enjoy the good things that God gives us and we'll have the power to enjoy them. We will have God and we will enjoy Him. And because we have what we most want and God is the one that gives it to us, we will have rest. That is what we look forward to the most, I think. And if I may be so bold in saying that, as believers, is no more longing or needing or crying out, or unfulfilled desires in heaven. It will just be pure joy, pure rest in God. And it will be God who is the one that gives himself to us. And it will be God that gives us the power to enjoy enjoy him. And we will have rest in him. And that is what we look forward to.